in the 29 years that I've been preaching in this pulpit this morning, I came here at 7 o'clock to get everything ready, and I, this empty sanctuary, I looked at it, and I tried to imagine what 29 years, it's like what all has gone on here, you know? And my eyes were filling with tears at that time. But in those 29 years, there have been five long sermon series that I've preached. In 1980 to 19, and some of you have been here for all of those. In 1980 to 81, it was 44 sermons on Romans. 83 to 84, it was another 45 sermons in Genesis. 85 to 86 was 44 sermons in Acts. 88 to 89 was 44 sermons in Hebrews. I don't know what's magical about 44, but keep showing up. And then God interrupted the pattern, and in 92 to 94, we had 54 sermons on the Gospel of Mark. All that happened in the first 14 years. In the last 15 years, I haven't preached a long series. But the time has come now for that. In the uh, middle of 2008, as I was thinking about my sabbatical plans and getting ready, the things that I wanted to study, I was reading a book by Eugene Peterson called The Jesus Way. And in there, there were two magnificent chapters on the preaching of Isaiah and the role that his book played in redemptive history. And I was so gripped by the way Peterson described it, that I felt I needed to use the sabbatical to just study Isaiah deeply. And so once again, I want to thank you as a congregation for giving me and Sham the gift of sabbatical, so that for five or six months, several hours a day, I was able to immerse myself in this book. And I have a growing sense, have been for a while now, that the preaching of Isaiah is going to become fairly definitive in my life, in my outside preaching, because you send me out to various places to preach as well. But also, more than anything else, I think it's going to become very definitive for our church. Some of you might recall on our 40th anniversary in 2001, how Isaiah chapter 61 was independently chosen by three different people, two speakers and one elder who gave the benediction. And Isaiah 61, the first four verses, talk about the Spirit of the Lord being upon us to preach good news to the poor. And most of you know how in the last six or seven years, how much of our ministry to the poor in the community has developed. And the thought that struck me was, if that could happen from one chapter in Isaiah, what would happen from a long period of immersion in the entire book? There is one very significant difference between Isaiah and the other five long books that I've preached from. Unlike Romans and Hebrews, which is a systematic development of doctrine and theology, unlike Genesis, Acts, and Matthew, which is a historically continuous narrative of story, Isaiah is like neither one of them. It's actually more like a musical composition. One man put it this way. He said, the difference between poetry, because most of Isaiah is written in Hebrew poetry. And this is one difference between poetry and prose. They are not ideas presented one after the other in a logical sequence, but interwoven in artful ways like a symphony. Ideas appearing and disappearing and reappearing in a way that keep the thoughtful reader involved in an active dialogue with the writer. There are a couple of implications that follow right away. That is important for us. First of all, nobody needs to be intimidated by the feeling that they are not scholars or academics and therefore they cannot grasp complex argument. You see, I don't know the first thing about music theory. Sometimes when I hear our worship teams all talking about stuff, it's like jargon to me. I don't understand it at all. And my children have always said, I can't carry a tune. But that doesn't stop me from both enjoying music and singing. So in exactly the same way, nobody needs to feel disqualified from engaging with Isaiah in such a way that this gap between mind and heart is bridged by the imagination. The second thing, implication is this. 
just like in a musical composition whether it's a 3 minute song that we just finished singing or listening to Handel's Messiah for two and a half hours you know that this is true the same things keep coming back over and over again and recombined in different ways therefore you will be disappointed if you come to the series on Isaiah with this idea I hope I'm going to learn something new today you might but that will be incidental What is important is not that you grasp your mind and wrap it around some new theological truth. Although there will be plenty of that, believe me. What is absolutely urgent and what poetry makes possible is that you will have more immersion and more experience and not more knowledge. And you and I know that that is true. When we listen to our favorite music, whether it's secular music, I love jazz. And, and all of our iTunes programs have got five star ratings on them. So we know which songs we want to listen to over and over again. Or which songs we like to sing. Guess what? You know the words already, right? You already know what's coming. You already know the information. You know the tune. So why do you keep listening to it over and over again? It's not more information, but you have more immersion and more experience at the end of it. So those are two things I think that Isaiah is going to do for us. Now, I don't know Hebrew poetry and you don't either. <laughs> So we have a bit of, bit of a disadvantage. It almost makes me want to know Hebrew poetry. But we don't. Therefore, we're going to do a couple of things to compensate a little bit. First of all, we're going to slow down a lot. Uh, you've got to slow down when you read poetry, right? You can read through prose fast. <laughs> but poetry, you've got to reread it. You've got to let the unfamiliar juxtaposition of ideas and words and images kind of roll over. You've got to savor poetry. You know? So we're going to slow down. And one of the ways we'll slow down is we'll pray more often. Long before I studied Isaiah and, got, and I've got the kind of intellectual knowledge that I've gained over the last six years, I have prayed through the book of Isaiah for over 25 years. So many rich images in there to pray for. And so that's another way in which mind and heart can be engaged. And so hopefully sometimes in the middle of a sermon, sometimes before, sometimes after, in the study guides, I want to write sections on prayer as well if we can. Uh, those are two ways in which we can compensate for the fact that we, don't, we are not Hebrews who don't know how to read Hebrew poetry. There's another big difference between this series and the uh, five long series I've done before, and that is how the worship teams have prepared. Uh, sometime in July, I, I sent a summary. The first 20 pages of my notes were a summary of the whole book of Isaiah. I sent it to all of our worship leaders. I also encouraged them, starting sometime in the month of June to now, by reading one chapter a day, reading through Isaiah twice completely. And many of them have done that. And so our worship leaders are coming to the preparation of these individual services with a whole lot of Isaiah sown already. Uh, Michelle Lorimer, whose song, Great God, we just sang, she's already written two songs from Isaiah 12 and Isaiah 26. And at the right time, we'll hope to learn those as well. And so we're expecting all that kind of thing to happen before. That hasn't happened now, that hasn't happened before. And also, because Isaiah is... um, kind of hard to structure and plan. I don't know in advance what I'm going to be speaking on on a particular Sunday or a weekend. And so our worship leaders are going to have to plan their services without that knowledge, which means both they and me and you together with us are going to have to trust God to be speaking in their minds and minds in such a way as to create something powerful. And last week, if you were here, you know what happens when God takes over a worship service. You had that extended benediction at the end in all three services. That wasn't planned by the worship leaders. It wasn't planned by me. There just was enough time. And God gave me that thought right a Saturday night sitting there. And so I'm 
excited. I'm excited also, which means that you can't, you have that much less to trust in human ingenuity and cleverness in attempting to make things happen. And instead, see what God does and respond to that. You will also see, by the way, as we move through today's message, the introductory message, how this kind of faith, even in the way we approach the study of Isaiah, is very much in keeping with the message of the book itself. This morning and probably next week as well, and maybe even a third week, I don't know, uh, I want to just spend some time on the book as a whole. In one of my sabbatical soundings, I'd encourage you from sometime in August, I think it was, to read through Isaiah. And if you started it then, you would be just be finishing it by about now. I don't know whether, some, whether you did or not, but I know some of you did. Because one lady came to me on my first Sunday back after sabbatical, and she said, oh, I've been reading it. She said, but it's so confusing. Well, that's understandable. As I said, it was Hebrew poetry. It's long. It was written 2,700 years ago. And not only that, it was written in a historical context that is difficult to figure out by reading the book. Because it's not primarily history. It's poetry. But it has a historical context to it. And without understanding that historical context, large sections of the book may not make much sense. So I think it's important for us to grasp the book as a whole, to kind of step back from the details so that we know what the big picture is all about. And the big picture helps build a little bit of anticipation. Well, like as I was approaching my sabbatical, I didn't know what the details of the six months would be like, but from my previous sabbaticals, I had some idea what sabbatical was all about, and that was enough to get me excited and full of anticipation. I still had to live it out to experience it, but the anticipation was there. So in the same way, I hope that these first two or three messages with the big picture will, give, will fill us with that sense of anticipation that these ancient words are words that God still speaks to us today from. Now, the book has 66 chapters to it. One chapter is crucial. That is chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the call of Isaiah the prophet. And we'll probably spend at least two, if not three, sermons when we come to Isaiah chapter 6. It is so foundational. But for this morning, you just need to remember again that in Isaiah chapter 6, he encounters the holy God. Holy, holy, holy. The angels are crying when Isaiah sees him. And in that chapter, the holiness of God is applied in three directions. First of all, it talks about the transcendence of God. He saw the Lord high and mighty, high and lifted up. But he also experienced his own holiness in the face of that holiness. And so that was holiness and its relationship to judgment on sin. But then Isaiah also experienced the cleansing fires from the altar in God's presence. And unclean lips became clean and he was commissioned. That was holiness applied to salvation and redemption. And so these three movements, the holiness of God with respect to its transcendence, God's holiness with respect to judgment, and God's holiness with respect to salvation and redemption, is really the outworking of this entire book of Isaiah. Thirty-three times Isaiah uses the word holy, only twenty-six times in the rest of the entire Old Testament. And Isaiah's favorite title for God is the Holy One of Israel. He uses it 25 times and only 7 times in the rest of the Old Testament is that title used. It's an interesting title because it gives us a clue to the arrangement of the book as a whole. On the first half of the title is the Holy One. That's God in His transcendence. But He's the Holy One of Israel, of a people. This holy, transcendent, infinitely holy God has chosen a people for himself and has entered into a relationship with them. And when holiness and transcendence and imminence, those are two fancy words for distance and closeness, 
When a holy God chooses to make himself intimate with the people, there are some things that follow. First of all, there's the awesome threat of holiness to a careless and unresponsive people. If this awesome God chooses to come close to us and we take a ho-hum attitude towards it, take it or leave it, ah, maybe, then we're in danger of judgment. That's one immediate implication. And Israel did respond. Judah did respond that way. And for that they went into judgment to Babylon. And there we see the second dimension of the holiness. God judges. But he also deals with sin. And the second implication of this title holy one of Israel. Because he is the holy one of Israel. He will go to great lengths to deal with sin. And to reclaim the sinner for himself. Because the people belong to him. And thirdly. Because he is still the Holy One, even though he loves people who are sinners and brings them back, he loves them too much to leave them the way they are. And therefore, we also see how he will create a holy people for himself who will enjoy him forever. These three implications follow from that title when holiness and transcendence shows up in a community and God chooses that community to be with himself. And really, these are the three divisions of the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters... The awesome threat of holiness to a careless and unresponsive people. And it ends with the people going off into judge, uh, exile. So, chapter 40 to 55. How far the Holy One will go to deal with sin and reclaim the sinner. And chapters 56 to 66. How he will create a holy people for himself who will enjoy him forever. This I guess if you will is the big picture of Isaiah. Dividing into the three large sections. And together they expound for us the Holy One. But the Holy One of Israel. And of you and me. So let's just take a few moments to look at each one of these a little bit more in detail. The awesome threat of holiness to a careless and unresponsive people. Now in order to understand the first 39 chapters, we need to know something about the history. And you know, we will be, re- we will be revisiting this history throughout, so don't worry if you don't get it all this morning. It's just, and that's the beautiful thing about this, you know. You, how, how well do you get to know a song? Not the first time, right? But by the time you sing at the 15th time, you get to know it, then you don't need the words, you, don't need it, you just sing. That's the same thing will happen with Isaiah. In fact, you'll, by the time you get to chapter 66, you get it, we're doing fine. Okay? So don't worry about it. This is the history of that time. When, Judah, when Isaiah preached, the people of God had already been divided into two parts. There were the ten northern kingdom of Israel <clears throat> and the two, southern, two uh, tribes that formed the southern king of Judah. And Isaiah was preaching to Judah. <clears throat> the dominant power in, world, in the world at that time was Assyria. Not Syria, starting with that, but Assyria. More like modern day Iraq approximately. Now Assyria was intent on expansion. And its real goal was to capture Egypt down here. Which is the other large kingdom. But there were these two small kingdoms of Israel and Syria that were in the way. And so Assyria was planning to attack these two kings. And so the king of Syria and the king of Israel decided to form a confederacy. And maybe together they might resist Assyria. And they were inviting Ahaz, king of Judah, to join them in this. But Ahaz didn't want to join them in this. In fact, Isaiah was encouraging him not to do so, but to trust in God. But Ahaz, instead of trusting God, was still afraid of these two people. And so he goes directly to Assyria and says, can you help me? And the Assyrians say, no problem, we'll help you, but now you're my servant. And so the Assyrians attacked Israel and Syria... Didn't attack Judah, but Judah from now on was paying tribute and they were slaves to Assyria. That continued until the time of a king of Judah named Hezekiah. Hezekiah rebelled against Assyria. And for, in this he was encouraged by the preaching of Isaiah. 
And that continued for a while. But then another threat showed up. Egypt, which was another superpower, said to Hezekiah, why don't you make an alliance with us? We will protect you. And Hezekiah gave in to that. And then much, and of course now Assyria got angry and they started attacking Judah. And guess what Egypt did? Egypt took her money and said bye-bye. They were betrayed by Egypt. <laughs> and now they were all alone. Defenseless on their own. Isaiah is continuing to preach to Hezekiah at this time and to the people. And finally Hezekiah says, okay God, I'll trust you. In this, in this very, very vulnerable state of affairs, I will trust you. And this first section ends with the amazing destruction of the Assyrian army by God. If you want to take the central thrust of these first 37 chapters, it is the fact that God is sovereign over all the nations of the world and therefore Judah would have to make up its mind in the face of external threats who she was going to trust in. Human alliances that sounded wise are God. And if there's a single verse of scripture that I that can want to focus on for this morning, it is found in this section, actually chapter 7 verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And you know, it's interesting, I told you earlier on that one of the ways we are, differences that we are hoping that God will simultaneously lead me and lead our worship leaders, Sheila chose this verse. She didn't know I was going to talk about it. I didn't know she was. So it gives me great encouragement. This is what God's going to do throughout the series. He's going to work directly in the hearts of the two people. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And my hope is if you get one message through 66 chapters of Isaiah, that this will be worked into our hearts in all kinds of situations. And every time today or every time in the series you hear me say, if you do not stand firm in your faith, I'd like you to complete it by saying you will not stand at all. Remember Alan taught us last week, give thanks, and we all said we give thanks. So every time you hear me say, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Well, today we are not threatened by Assyria and there's no kingdoms trying to attack us in Canada today on their way to the U.S. or anything like that. Although I just read in yesterday's newspaper that we are the only country on uh, Al-Qaeda's target that has not yet been attacked. So it's not quite true. We are in danger perhaps. But the fact of the matter is we are a global village today. And things that happen 5,000 miles or 10,000 miles from us affect us or can affect us. We know what happens in the Middle East affects us in various ways. Afghanistan is in danger of becoming another Vietnam for Obama. And, if, and you know what the Taliban is doing in Pakistan these days. And if that government is not able to control them and Pakistan is a nuclear power, if the Taliban gets a hold on nuclear power, I don't need to stretch your imagination further. When the U.S. pulls out of Iraq, who knows what's going to happen in the internecine warfare between Sunnis and Shiites, and whether that's going to be breeding ground for Al-Qaeda terrorists again. That's on the political side. On the economic side, we know the chaos we're in. Every day we are told that we should buy gold, because gold is the only thing that has tripled in value in the last seven years. We've got a banking system that is all so closely linked to one another, marked, marked largely by corporate greed, and yet so vulnerable that the weakest link explodes the whole system. And we saw that in the last couple of years. And then we've got health crisis. And you know what? Germs do not need passports and visas. Something happens in China and two weeks later we're in trouble here. These are all kinds of modern day alliances 
And their decisions affect you and me and we can do nothing about them. Who are we going to trust? That's the question. So what is Isaiah going to say to us? If we will not stand by faith, we will not stand at all. And just to bring it home, really close to home. I know it was July 24th because during the sabbatical I journal every day and so this was on my July 24th journal. I, I forget where I was in Isaiah. But I was studying. I'd finished my study and I opened up uh, the uh, internet to just check an email and I saw uh, on the internet portal one of the headline news items was H1N1 vi- virus is going to return in the fall with great, much greater stress. And there were recommendations that because pregnant women were going to be the most at risk, they said perhaps we should be issuing an advisory that women should not get pregnant until this crisis is all over. But the reason, normally, why would that bother me, right? <laughs> except, except, just in those days, Vijay and Jen had been talking to Sham and me about how God has been perhaps laying on their hearts to think about having another child. So you could see immediately, I was afraid. Oh, maybe we should tell them to wait. But I just finished studying Isaiah. And you know what he said? He said, don't fear what they fear. Don't call a conspiracy what they call a conspiracy. I am your sure foundation. I am your stability in troubled times. And the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. And so instead of being afraid, we were able to listen to them, encourage them. And so in April and May, we're expecting our sixth grandchild. You know. And not only that, I was also reminded of the fact that when Isaiah said these words to King Ahaz, his sons were standing next to him. And his sons were sons who were named by God, and their names carried the message to trust in God. And I thought to myself, wow, what kind of a name is this sixth grandchild going to have? What destiny is he or she going to play? And do I want to miss all of that because I'm afraid? So, if we will not stand in faith, we will not stand at all. Well, Hezekiah's faith, unfortunately, didn't last till the end of his life. He got scared again. So, you see, we have to learn to keep... The fact that we trusted God once doesn't mean we're going to trust Him a second time. We've got to keep learning And this time Hezekiah gave in to the potential threat from Babylon and that sealed the doom of Judah and eventually they went off into captivity. Now the exile represented the worst that could happen to a nation. In the seven to eight hundred years from their exodus from Egypt to the exile, Israel had a checkered history, up and down. They were slow learners, but they somehow survived as the people of God. The exile finished all of that. No temple, no king, no land. And they suddenly found themselves in exile. And in the exile, two questions began to surface. The first was obvious. Have we sinned beyond redemption? In, in rejecting the Holy One of Israel and bringing this judgment of exile upon us, have we gone so far as to go beyond the pale of God's mercy? Will He still Deliver us. So that was the first question. The second question that the exile raised was, maybe he will, but can he? Does he have the power? Because you see, in those days when nations fought against one another, it was considered as a war between the gods. Babylon's god was Marduk, and from a human perspective, looks like Marduk had whooped Jehovah. And so these were the two questions that were facing them. Is God willing... Or have we sinned beyond redemption? And is God able? And the second part of Isaiah 40 to 55 answers exactly those two questions. 
And the two images of God that is used over and over again in this section is God as creator and God as savior. You know, the Hebrew word bara, which is translated creation, is a unique word in Hebrew because it is only used with God as the subject. In other words, God is, and it carries the idea of radical newness. Where would we expect that to find it often? We'd find it, we would expect to find bara used a lot in Genesis 1. And we do. We find it six times in Genesis 1. Guess what? We find it 17 times in Isaiah 40 to 55. Why? Why? Because you see, the people of God in exile was just like Genesis, the creation in Genesis 1. Shapeless and empty. They had become a people that were bent out of shape by their own sin. They had become a people that were hopeless. They were empty. And so God, Isaiah, in bringing before them the God, the creator God, is saying to them all over again, just as the Holy Spirit brooded over the chaos of a shapeless creation, so the same Holy Spirit is brooding over a people that have become shapeless. And he is able to again give shape and again fill them. And then secondly, of course, the word Savior reminds them of the fact that just as I delivered you from Egypt, so I'm able to deliver you out of Babylon as well. And you can just imagine the effect of a group of people in exile reading Isaiah. I mean, it was written down by that time. They had access to Jeremiah. Daniel read Jeremiah in exile. So good possibility they had Isaiah. And as they were reading Isaiah, some of them broke through to this insight and this understanding that Isaiah who predicted the exile also predicted something that was unknown in human history until that time. The return of an exiled people back to their own land. And I can just imagine them stimulating faith within one another. So the second section of Isaiah was written again to this group of people. This time in the face of the mess created by their own sin. If you will not stand by faith, you will not stand at all. What about us today? We're not a people in exile in that sense, but you know, we're facing exactly the same two questions that they faced. First of all, we wonder whether God is really able. I do sometimes. You see in our own city magnificent mosques and temples being raised. We see them being financed by voluntary labor from across the world. People giving up their time and their money and flying over to build these buildings. We see a greater unity amongst them than we see sometimes in our own lives. Meanwhile, in the very countries that are building the houses of worship here, churches are being burned and Christians are being persecuted. I don't know about you, that makes me wonder, is God really able or not? We certainly face that. If we are honest, we have to face that. Then the second one is complicated by the mess of sin in our own lives. Just last night on the way into the worship service, I heard about another marriage breaking up. And sometimes our external lifestyles and our values are no different from these worshippers of other nations. And so exactly those same two questions face us today. How we sinned our way beyond any genuine revival and redemption. And if not, is God really able? He doesn't seem to be. They seem to be winning. Isaiah speaks therefore to the same situation and says, No, no, I'm still creator. I'm still savior. I can still do new things. And I can still brood over my people. Over and over again in chapters 40 to 55 will say, I am the Lord and there is no other. And so to you and me in that situation facing those two same questions of the apparent powerlessness of God and the actual powerlessness of our sinful life. If you will not stand by faith, you will not stand at all. Well, God does uh, demonstrate His power. 
First, he raises up Persia to conquer Babylon. And then he puts in the heart of the Persian king to let his people go back. Now they come back to the land and guess what? Now there are two more challenges to faith. And they're different. Each phase is different. Here are two new challenges to faith. When the people come back, you can see their exaltation. Psalm 126 celebrates that. We were like people who, were, who pinched ourselves in a dream. Is it really happening? Are we coming back? We're rebuilding the temple. So there was that sense of excitement. And along with that would be another temptation. I guess God is going to fulfill all of his promises very quickly now. And in the whole first section of Isaiah, over and over again, God said the nations are going to stream to Jerusalem. The law of the Lord is going to go out from Jerusalem. And so what, they think, what are they thinking? Oh, he's brought us back. He has redeemed us. He is powerful. He is sovereign. I guess very soon now all the nations are going to come. But that didn't happen. Israel was still, a, Judah was still a tiny little backwater in a vast Persian empire. They still had no king. They still had no independence. And life was even harder. So now another temptation. This time it is not the temptation whether God is able or whether God is willing. But why is he taking so long? This time it is a temptation to impatience in the face of the slowness of which God is working. That's one new test to faith. To give up because it's taking too long. The other temptation is even more subtle. Well, we thought we had sinned our way beyond hope and this amazingly gracious God has brought us back. I guess it doesn't matter how we live. Now the temptation is to give up that pursuit of holiness because it doesn't matter. He's Savior. And so the last section of Isaiah is written to deal with that issue. That this God who redeemed his people loves them too much to leave them the way they are and he will make them a holy people and he will still finish the work of reviving his nation so the nations will come to him. Again, you see the relevance of that to our life situation today. The purposes of God to bless the nations of the world has gone on much further on than in Isaiah's time. Huge parts of the world that Isaiah didn't even know existed today worship the Lord. Just this past week... uh, talking to a young pastor from India, just rejoicing to hear uh, all the good things that God is doing in planting churches in all kinds of places. But in that same conversation, we also lamented over the vastness of the unfinished task. So there still today are nations, millions of them, who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. So that work is unfinished and it's very slow. Another 2,000 years have passed. And so there's a temptation we face to say, ah, will this ever happen? It's too slow. Bradleys are in Turkey for 18 years and what do they have to show for it? That story can be told over and over again in various places. Especially in the resistant world. There's Wally and Bev here. How many years they worked before some of the hope began to come. So that problem is there with us. And then the other one, that same subtle area. I guess because God is so gracious and we now understand the grace so much more in the death and resurrection of Jesus and his love for us and that God is our father and we are his children and he's our high priest. Ah, I guess we can slack off a little bit in living holy lives. And so Isaiah's preaching comes to us in those issues. No, I am still Lord of the nations. My work with them will be finished. Even though my timeline is not. So don't give up. So it's a call to persevere in faith in finishing the global mandate. And it's a call to persevere in living holy lives. Not in spite of the grace, but because of the grace of God within us. So, in that dimension, if we will not live by faith, we will not stand at all. 
So this is it. This is the message of the book of Isaiah. First 39 chapters, the awesome threat of holiness to a careless and unresponsive people. Chapters 40 to 55, how far the Holy One will go to deal with sin and reclaim the sinner. And 56 to 66, how he will create a holy people for himself who will enjoy him forever. It was written to Israel in three different historical... It was all written before the exile. I will come to that next week. Uh, But it was written to three different settings. Israel before the exile, Israel in exile, and Israel after the exile. And 2,800 years later, it speaks exactly the same to us. In the face of external threats, be they political, be they social, financial, in the face of messed up lives and loss of hope, and in the face of a salvation not yet fully accomplished, both in our lives and among the nations, we are called to what? Stand firm in the faith or we will not stand at all. If you will not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these ancient words. And we acknowledge before you that we have, we have neither the faculties, to, I certainly don't have the ability to do justice to them, and our people don't have the ability to hear clearly. So together we are completely and totally dependent on you. And we trust that our helplessness and our need and yet our desire. Lord, we also affirm, we believe, we believe these ancient words are for us. So we pray that in the weeks and the months and the years to come, you will just break through the layers of of, of sin, of ignorance, of laziness, of indifference, of skepticism, of busyness, of sloth, of haste. physical limitations of of personal suffering and issues that take our attention away. Work past all of these things and let these ancient holy words impart life and faith to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, as I was thinking about um, the benediction, I imagine two groups of people. First, I, I imagine the faithful in exile, pouring over Isaiah. You know. Groups of people, while the, while the majority were happily settled because life was not too bad in Persia. But there was this group of people that talked to one another, said, no, no, there's more coming, there's more coming. And I thought of Malachi, you know, where in the midst of a prevailing aura of skepticism, back from exile, again there was a small group of people that says, then those who feared the Lord talked to one another, and the Lord listened. And those two pictures give me my benediction. May God bless you with many, many holy conversations that come out of pouring over His promises, and may you spur one another on to faith and to good works. Go in Jesus' name.